Welcome to This is Democracy on the Road. Discussions and interactions across the world. This summer, we're going to take our discussions uh, far away from Austin, Texas, as we meet with and talk to uh, exciting people uh, around the world. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. We're in London, uh, in an English pub, appropriately enough, uh, with a good friend and great scholar, uh, Charles Laterman. Charlie, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. And we have Zachary Suri here, of course, as well. Hello. And uh, in between our drinks and our discussion here, uh, we are talking with Charlie about uh, the long history of U.S.-British relations uh, and the relationship of Britain to Europe and the wider world and what we can learn from that uh, for today. Charlie has just published a fantastic new book uh, called Sharing the Burden on uh, the relationship between the United States and Great Britain in the early 20th century. Uh, Charlie, welcome. It's good to have you on. Thank you. And I'm sorry to take you to the one place in London where you couldn't get fish and chips. I'm very <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll survive with something else. So, uh, Charlie, your book recounts an important moment in the early 20th century when the United States and Great Britain, uh, in many ways, uh, for the first time, interacted as not equals, but as near equals on the international stage. Tell us a little more about that. What, what was significant about that moment that you've covered in such depth in your book? Well, I think what's particularly interesting about that period is that the British are starting to come to terms with their own sense of relative decline. And what Britain is looking to do at that point is looking around the world, looking at potential competitors, new rising powers in Europe, new rising powers in East Asia, and is looking to maintain a certain sort of international order. And so it looks at what nations it could reach out to as allies to help it to maintain its position and maintain a certain sort of international system. And what becomes a major emphasis and a major focus for British policymakers from really the 1890s onwards um, is that an, an alliance with the United States is the way in which Britain can maintain its power that it can bring the United States into it and essentially get the United States to share the burden of underwriting global order. Hence your title. Hence the title. And um, and, and what Britain does is um, is a there's a big emphasis on, on all manner of things, um, shared racial conceptions, shared um, imperial missions. Um, but one of the things it does do as well is look at shared humanitarian ideals, or at least shared concern for certain minorities around the world. And the one which becomes a major focus of British attention and of American attention is the um, is, is the Armenian community of the Ottoman Empire. Right, right. And Exactly, you had a question? Yes, I was wondering, how do you think the United States uh, sort of adapted its view of the world? Because it had, it had long thought of Britain as an enemy, as someone who was a colonial antagonizer in a society that was really anti-imperialist for a long time. It's, it's, it's a great question, and uh, the, the US-British relationship is it's so ironic in that way. I mean, we're sitting here in London at the moment where the main musical that everyone wants to see is Hamilton, and Hamilton is a story of of American uprising against Britain and um, and sort of and, and how do you go from that moment, as you say, from when the United States um, sees Britain as the sort of colonial overlord, and how does it move ultimately to a position where it sees Britain as a as a nation, at least after the Second World War, is one that 
it will entertain a special relationship, as Winston Churchill calls it. How does it, how does it go through that, that process? And it's particularly, I think, the 1890s when this starts to shift. Um, you have in 1895 the last real serious time in the United States and the British Empire come close to going to war um, over the Venezuelan boundary yes, dispute, yes. a sort of a long forgotten, certainly bizarre incident. Um, but the but they almost went to war, which they is almost significant. Went to war. A lot of jingoism on both sides. And the other thing which I think shifts things is the Spanish-American War, where Britain is the one nation in Europe that's quite sympathetic to what the United States is doing. And out of this, you get sort of one sense of a shared mission in the world, a shared mission, whether um, firstly to intervene, um, as the United States does um, on behalf of the Cubans, but also a shared imperial mission to spread Anglo-Saxon civilization and a certain mission of the English-speaking peoples. And a person who's most identified with that and who's sort of the centerpiece of my book is Theodore Roosevelt. And Roosevelt is someone who becomes um, really the, the main proponent of a strong relationship between the United States and the British Empire, even though most Americans are still quite suspicious of Britain during this period. So he has to do it most, mainly in sort of behind-the-scenes ways while he's president. And it's only really with the First World War that you have this opportunity that Roosevelt sees it, that the United States and Britain can fight for their shared ideals and for their, their shared interests as well. I mean, Roosevelt is not some bleary-eyed idealist. He sees Britain as being the under, undergirder of a certain balance of power in Europe and that Britain basically ensures through its navy that the United States is more secure. And so he thinks that ultimately the United States has got to step up and play its role in the world supporting Britain and basically defending this certain international system against challenges like Imperial Germany. And that's really when you get the start of this. So, so we all know uh, to some extent where this story goes after World War II or during World War II and thereafter. Why is there this period after the chronology of your book uh, and uh, the beginnings of World War II where these lessons seem to be forgotten? Well, I think what's, what's fascinating at this point is that we, we tend to look back over the period of, of one side handing the baton to the other, the yes. British hand the baton to the United States. That's not the way the British see it, certainly during the First World War, and their hope is that together the United States and the British Empire can basically run the world together. The two would be co-equals in this system. And basically what the, Ameri what the British want to do after the First World War is pull the Americans into a system where you'd have the League of Nations based on an Anglo-American alliance, which is not quite Wilson's vision of this. Wilson wants the United Nations, sorry, the, the League of Nations yes. to be the basis for American leadership in the world and for sort of a new sort of international system. And ultimately what happens is Wilson is unable to convince Americans to take on that role in the world. What the British are trying to do is get the Americans take on sort of tangible responsibilities. And so one of the big focuses of my book was the possibility of the Americans taking on a mandate in the Middle East after the First World War for part of the former Ottoman Empire. Ultimately, that gets rejected. The League of Nations gets rejected. And America drifts away into a, um, really into a position where it doesn't want to take on political commitments in the world. Right. And ultimately, there's a sort of a rejection of taking on a leadership role in the world. And that's partly influenced by isolationism and partly influenced just by the sense that America doesn't have as many stakes in the world as, say, the British. The British and the European powers feel that they have 
interest in, in being part of, the, part of the international order. Wilson is mainly selling this international world based on a very idealistic vision. And it's really, the Americans don't take on that role. And throughout the 20s and 30s, the British are desperately trying to find ways to pull the Americans back in. But what I think British policymakers realise and what um, um, you see from politicians at the time is they realise that there's always more um, benefits to the British about getting the Americans in than it is for the Americans about getting involved. And it's how do you convince the Americans to take on that role? And do you see, Charlie, that as an analogue for the world we're in today? I mean, the, the standard way of thinking about this is that in the crucible of World War II, the United States and Great Britain work out these differences and forge on together in Churchillian and Rooseveltian rhetoric into the sunlight of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, but are we back in that world today that you've just described of uncertainty and particularly American reluctance to work with Great Britain? I, th I think there's definitely some, um, some analogous um, ideas from that earlier period in, in the sense that the United States doesn't feel that it needs to take on this. I mean, there's large swathes of the American public who might not necessarily feel that, that they really need to take on this role. And actually, one of the things that I think has always sort of seemed to be the case for the Europeans is that even though the Europeans spend a lot of time criticizing the United States, there's certainly been a sense that international order doesn't really work without American leadership. American leadership underpins that international order. But I think one of the things, one of the lessons of the, of the Second World War, and it's summed up in, as usual in a wonderful Churchill quote, of Churchill's course. fantastic line that the only thing that's worse than fighting with, uh, with allies is fighting without them. And I think that is something that the United States will ultimately come to recognise if it does reject a certain international or rejects um, a, 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 an international order based on alliances with its closest allies is that there's, there's a, allies that are really problematic they're difficult to deal with they're really irritating but you're always better to have them than not to have them right. so, so if that's true which uh, we've certainly argued throughout our podcast it is why is Great Britain itself rejecting its allies in Europe today? How do we understand Brexit in that context? I, I think Britain has always had a unique relationship with Europe, um, an, an awkward relationship with Europe. Sure. And I think um, ever since the 1970s, there has been a certain British reluctance um, among certain trades of the population to immerse itself in, into Europe. But ultimately, the decision was taken in the 1970s, but mainly for economic reasons, um, it was to the benefit of, the, of Britain to get closer to the European community. In the 1980s, as Europe starts to move in a more political direction, as it starts to move towards what is to become the European Union, there's a growing suspicion in Britain among large um, um, swathes of the population. And really from the Maastricht Treaty in 1992 onwards, and from the sort of birth of the European Union, there's been a divide in British politics over whether Britain gets closer to Europe, as, as many of its political leaders wanted it to do, um, and many of its political leaders wanted it to join the Eurozone and to join the, um, um, the currency, um, uh, the common currency with the Euro. Um, and there's also been a large swathe of the British public which has not wanted that sort of political, that ultimate political destiny to be closer to Europe. And that has been sort of a clash that we've seen 
that has dominated British politics for 30 years. Um, or, or arguably, going back to the 1970s, certainly the political union, um, the question about Britain and the European Union since the early 90s has been one of the, one of the major factors of British politics and certainly the politics of the Conservative Party. Sure, sure. But, but why at this moment? Why, why, has, why has Britain set itself up in, in a way now that seems both at odds with Europe, at odds with its traditional role as an American ally. I mean, it's it's hard to understand how the world of Theodore Roosevelt and David Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson and Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt has produced the world of Boris Johnson and Theresa May and Donald Trump. I think having just spent a whole afternoon in the um, in the British National Archives looking over documents. There's definitely the case. We tend to think that today is sort of a unique um, moment where British and American politicians don't really understand each other and they, and they find each other's um, way of doing about politics completely bizarre. But you end up with the same things going on even during the Second World War. The British look at the Americans as disorganised and they, they seem to be in disarray. And the Americans look at the British as um, people who just don't seem to know what's good for them. Um, and, and, but I think what we see today, I mean, there's, there's a number of unique, I mean, the, the, the British um, Prime Minister, Howard Macmillan, summed it up probably best when he said, what's the sort of driving force in history, events, dear boy, events. And there have been a number of events that have occurred over the last 10, 15 years, which I think have shaped where Britain has gone. I think there's always been an under, undergirding of a, of, of a probably... 30 to 40% of the British public that were never really reconciled to the European Union. The thing which tipped it over the edge was a number of incidents that happened from the beginning of the 21st century. Um, one aspect of it um, is, is without a doubt the, um, the economic um, crisis, the, um, the crisis that occurred from 2008. Um, another aspect of it is no doubt the Iraq war. Um, and there's other aspects of Tony Blair's um, legacy. Right. The decision um, to, um, which, which other European nations didn't do, um, was to sort of basically have um, unrestricted free movement of people from the new nations from Eastern Europe, yeah. which, which um, the decision to do that has played into this politics as well. So it's hard to sort of put your hand on one moment that led Britain down this path to where it is today and living in the European Union. Um, but I think there's a, there's sort of a, a series of things that led Britain to that moment. And then, of course, David Cameron's political gamble, um, which is what it was in 2016, which he lost, um, was to give British, the British public an in-out vote on whether to join the Europe, um, whether right. to remain part of the European right. Union. Proving again that events matter. Events matter, yes. So how do you think uh, that uh, Brexit, if it happens, or even, even the aftermath of the referendum will affect um, American-Anglo relations. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic question. It's um, I think one of the things that which which we've seen with Britain at the moment is that Dean Acheson famously says in the uh, in the 1960s that um, that Britain has, has lost an empire and has still not found a role. Um, I think ultimately coming out of the European Union, we're going through a similar process where Britain has left is, is leaving the European Union. Or at least it seems to be. I mean, this is sort of an interminable saga at the moment. But it looks like it's going to leave the European Union, 
and then it needs to basically find its role in the world once it leaves the European Union. And one of the problems that Britain has is that both sides of what were known as the Atlantic Bridge, which Tony Blair sort of saw as the, at the heart of British policy, being a bridge between the United States and the European Union. Both sides of that are starting to fray. So whether it's the European Union perhaps going in a more federalist direction with Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel, um, Britain isn't going to be part of that and isn't quite sure of its relationship with Europe once it leaves. But also Donald Trump's America going in a very, very different direction so that ultimately does the special relationship look as a, um, as a stable basis for Britain's role in the world. So ultimately Britain's going to have to decide over the next few years what sort of role it's going to take on. And I don't think the politicians or the British public have reconciled themselves to that yet. But ultimately, the question may be, does Britain want to roll in the world? Is, is this the sort of end of Britain wanting that sort of an outsized influence in the world? Because it is a small, slightly rainy island off of, off of the sort of European continent. Um, and there's no inevitability about it taking on that role. But I think, as, as, you, as you mentioned, Jeremy, um, over the last hundred years, Britain has seen itself as being fundamentally about taking on that role, in, taking on a role in the world. And the British-US relationship has, has rested on underpinning a certain sort of international order. The question will be will it, whether it will continue right. to want to do that. Right. And I guess that brings us this this really thoughtful historical overview brings us to. So the, the final question I think we need to ask, which is, where do we go from here? And particularly for our listeners who might see value in Anglo-American cooperation, how do we encourage that? Where do we go from here? Assuming that whether it's as a little England or a big England, uh, England is going to play an important role, the United Kingdom is going to be an important player. How do we think about the future of US-British uh, relations and what American citizens can do about it? Well, I think one of the things that's, that's always um, that, that's, well, that's certainly been the case in um, US-UK relations over the last 30, 40 years is that there's fundamental parts of that relationship that go on ben beneath the surface that maybe we don't necessarily see. So the intelligence relationship is fundamentally important. Um, the nuclear relationship is fundamentally important. And my sense is that, that will continue regardless. That is, that is too important to both nations to let it go. And I do think... Um, in Britain, we tend to have a bit of a, a soap opera about, is there a special relationship? Do the Americans still love us? Um, are we still the sort of number two to, to the United States? Um, I'm not sure if, if that's always a particularly helpful way to, to think about our role in the world, but I do think that ultimately there is something which has, which has kept the US and the UK close together and um, even when there's been political problems, there's been ever since, even since the Second World War, when it's been the sort of the high point of that relationship, there were always problems even then. There were problems between Churchill and Roosevelt. There were even problems between Thatcher and Reagan, even though we see that as sort of a golden era. And part of it is because there is a sense of a shared culture. Yes, there is a yes. sense of shared values. And I do think that those, uh, those common values will endure as long as the publics of the two countries commit themselves to them. So I think that is something where the public do have a role in this. It's not just the political soap opera going on above us. If the two countries commit themselves to a certain shared um, culture and certain shared political values, then you'd hope 
the, the good political relations that have underpinned international yes. order yes. since the, really, the, um, the end of the 19th century right, right. will continue. Right. I, I think, Charlie, what, you, what you've articulated so well is that there are structural factors, there are elements of the two societies that strongly bring them together around support for democratization. Uh, concerns about the use of force and, by, and, and maintenance of rule of, all, of law uh, across a larger international sphere. And um, citizens understanding the importance of those dynamics, supporting those dynamics and supporting leaders ultimately who recognize those dynamics, that will be more important than the particular soap opera of any particular Exactly, moment. exactly. And uh, I think you've given us a lot to think about here. Charlie, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I hope, hope we can get you some fish and chips to your time. We, we, well, that, that's part of our shared culture. Yes, exactly. Uh, right? <laughs> Zachary, thank you. What, do you. Do you think, by the way, before we close, Zachary, young people will be motivated to, to think about U.S.-British relations in productive ways? Yes, I, I really do think that um, the United States and England, even among our young population, are very connected, uh, even even if only by language, but I think it's a, it's a really important connection that will continue for a long time. Well, and, and I think nurturing these connections, rather than focusing on the personalities of the moment, is, is really what historical wisdom can help us to understand and pursue. So uh, thank you for joining us on this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.